Welcome back, everybody, to the Cave of Solitude, your pop culture and comic book podcast coming to you from the megacity metropolis of Toronto. I am your host, Eric Anthony, and I'm very, very pleased this week for episode 244 to have uh, Eisner Award winning, Eisner nominated, uh, overall professional, every, a very beloved artist. It's the incomparable Carl Kershaw. Carl, thank you for coming on to the show. This is a very special, uh, special event for us. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me. Oh, don't forget Schuster Award winning. Let's let's get the Canadian uh, representation there. Get all, all <laughs> give us all the, the the awards that you've won. Tell tell them. I think we're just all. we're just going to talk about Canada for this okay. whole thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> are you uh, are you podcasted out? You've been a busy guy lately with all the things that you've got going on. Um, I am not accustomed to this amount of um, promotion and talking about myself, but it's been. Um, I guess, you know, it's it's nice to do it after like a year and a half of not talking to anybody. Mm-hmm. And now at least I get to see some people in person on video. So um, it's good. It's good. It's good for my um, it's good for my vocal cords. There you go. To be able to speak a little more frequently. So, but yeah, yeah, it's been a heck of a month. And the Kickstarter is was funded. Uh, the Kickstarter for the abominable, abominable Charles Christopher was funded almost within 15 minutes, I've heard. So that that's 50, stress. 50, yeah, just under 50, 50 minutes. Um, yeah, really quickly. There we you reached go. our funding goal. It was a fifteen thousand dollar Canadian funding goal, mm-hmm. um, which pretty much just covered the printing of the the book. Like hopefully just printing, like modestly covered printing and some shipping. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we uh, we we blew through that pretty fast. And it's just been. Um, I'm just watching the. It's my first Kickstarter, so I, I. It's the first time I've actually been able to see this stuff happen in real time and just watch, the the kind of like back end statistics, of the whole thing. Like just watching the graph climb and then mm-hmm. being, being able to interact with people, as it happens. So it's yeah. Like basically, I spent that entire day in my chair, um, just responding to people and saying thank you and. Uh, trying to stay on top of questions, answering as many questions as I can. Yeah, congratulations. That's, uh, to, I, I mean, you are, you've been a professional for many years. It's not surprising that something that you were creating would be funded, but it's still got to be quite fulfilling to see the, the amount of people who are ready to support something, your first Kickstarter. Uh, what made you want to, to go about for this edition of uh, The Abominable Charles Christopher to do a Kickstarter? Well, the first couple of volumes, I self, I've self-published all of them. I mean, it's a free webcomic. It's always been free online since I started in um, 2007. But um, in that time, I've printed a couple of volumes of it, both hardcover and softcover. And um, I did those before Kickstarter was really around. So I mm-hmm. think if it had been, I, I would have used it. Because what I did was um, I, I made them available as pre-orders on my website. And it was pretty much just marketed to people who were already reading the comics. So um, if you were a fan of the comic or a regular reader and you wanted it in book form, you'd pre-order it. I used that money to pay the printer and then I'd, I'd send, send you your book and that was great. But now um, but now the way, the way Kickstarter works, um, I, can, I can reach all those people and a whole lot more people. You know, like I never was able to um, broaden my audience in any way because I, I was just selling to people who were already readers of it. So it's nice to have that platform um, behind me to to expand the scope of the thing. Like, I think Kickstarter is one of the few platforms like that that really what, that the creator really benefits from in terms of um, discoverability. 
Mm. You know what I mean? Like, I think there are a lot of new, I, I don't know for sure, but like just looking at the statistics, I think there are a lot of people who backed this project who had just never seen this before. Mm. So that's, that alone is amazing. That, that alone makes it worth um, using, I think. Yeah. And it's, it's quite uh, interesting to see for volume three is now bringing in a whole new audience like myself, who, I mean, I know your name, I know things you've worked on, but I didn't know about this particular project of uh, Charles Christopher. And it was our, our mutual friend, Sam Noir, who brought it out to me, pointed it out to me saying it was one of his favorite web comics, period, or one of his favorite works. And he just adores your work. And for me, now I'm discovering it for the first time. And it's exciting for, it's rare that you get a volume three as the first Kickstarter. Yeah. But yeah. to know that there's other volumes behind it that it kind of gives it a backbone in a way so mm-hmm. that's really cool i'm 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 uh, glad to be aboard now for the ride um since this is your first time on the podcast um i want to ask you a little bit about growing up in in ontario and welland uh what the experience was like as far as being a comic book fan and and kind of your journey into the art form well i just turned 47 so like when I was growing up, I mean, I grew up in like a rural area near Niagara Falls um, in a city called Welland. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Welland itself is like a pretty, you know, it's like a, it's a city. Like there's, they're famous for the Welland Canal and, you know, there's tourism there. And it's like, I can't remember. It's like, I'm trying to remember how many, what the population is now. But um, I grew up out, out in farmland. So mm. there was like, I spent a lot of time walking, like, you know, on my own drawing or walking around in the fields or in the woods behind the house, um, spending time with my dad out in the woods. Um, we always had animals around, but, uh, when I got into comics and especially when I got into comics as a potential career, it was, um, it was long and long ago, long enough ago that there was really no resource for learning that kind of thing. I mean, there was, there were some magazines and, uh, I gleaned what information I could from those, and, uh, and then to going to conventions and like just talking to people. So, um, so yeah, like I, I spent a lot of time, um, just scrounging for information and just trying to teach myself how to make comics. And I, I did that mostly from the time I was 16 to 18. And then after that, that was around like 1992, 1994, I think I finally kind of broke in so to speak like I got work at a, a very small publisher and I just sort of built from there I, I'm sorry to to go back to this but you said you're 47 years old you look really good for your age people oh, thanks man people people <laughs> say that to me sometimes at work they're surprised that I'm as old as I am I'm 37 but uh, I would have guessed me and you were the same age you look I to say that you were in the business that long I'm I'm a little bit shocked that's incredible well I dress like a teenager <laughs> that's the um, key so that probably yeah that probably doesn't doesn't uh, hurt but um but uh yeah it's been like I don't know like it's been like close to 30 years of just doing this professionally but I've been like you know I never did a lot of um like long stints on on any titles like I've done a lot of work for Marvel and for DC mostly for DC I kind of got in to DC around 2001 or something 2002 and then just sort of found a home there. Like I just did a lot of stuff for DC, uh, like Superman and Flash and like that kind of just kept rolling. I had a really good relationship with the people, uh, the editors there. Um, 
and it was fun. And I've just kind of been in and out of that. And then I started doing the webcomic in 2007, but it was always a hobby. You know, mm-hmm. like I never really tried to monetize it other than printing these books um, periodically. And even those were, you know, like I wasn't, you know, it's not like I was making a living off of that or anything. It was, mm-hmm. it was always just like, um, I kind of want a, a book of this and, and readers want it. So let's see what we can do. But they, like my career has been in mainstream superhero comics. Did you did you grow up being a big fan of particular superhero comics, whether Marvel or DC, or was it the overall genre of comics that you were attracted to? It was. I was a fan of. Um, I think the first. Well, I loved as a kid. I loved Batman and Spider Man. Mm-hmm. Um, like I think everybody does, but um, <clears throat> but it wasn't until I think I was probably I want to say like twelve. 11, 12, 13, like I started getting into, uh, with my friends, um, the DC, uh, the DC role-playing game, I think is what really got me into that world. Hmm. And it's right around the time that George Perez's, uh, Wolfman and Perez's, uh, Teen Titans series was really popular. Okay. And, um, so I kind of, that kind of brought me back into comics and then, and then I had friends who started going to comic shops regularly after that. And I didn't know that was a thing. So, so then I was introduced to the the whole notion of, you know, like going weekly to a comic store to buy comics. So prior to that, it was just whatever my parents grabbed me off the shelf or whatever. Like sometimes we'd be on a family trip and I'd, you know, we'd stop at a gas station and my mom would buy me a bunch of comics. And so I'd read those in the car. But, um, but really the first series that I was a massive fan of was um, ElfQuest okay. by Wendy and Richard Peeney. I just went crazy for that. It was such a beautifully... Um, beautifully drawn story, beautifully told story. Um, and uh, I bought it when Marvel was uh, publishing it through um, the Epic imprint. So they were all colored. I don't right. know if you've read it, but if you haven't, it's worth going and checking out. That first storyline, I think I think Epic did, I can't remember, I want to say maybe 30 or so issues of it. Okay. And then it just finishes. Uh, and then they continued it later. But that first chunk is what really... Um, me like that's what got me into comics that's what got me going back to the store every week to get new issues and then after that it was like it just snowballed into other things like I got you know in like the um 80s I got hooked on Frank Miller stuff I really loved um the uh, Electra Assassin series mm-hmm. miniseries um Frank Miller and Bill Sienkiewicz and then yeah like Dark Knight Returns and everything kind of took off from there and then like just to, just to cap it off like yeah I had no aspirations um, in terms of um, getting into the industry at that time. Uh, I didn't know there was an industry really, but I, I was always drawing a lot. It wasn't until the early '90s, like late '80s, early '90s, when like um, Jim Lee was drawing uh, Uncanny X Men, and Rob Liefeld was on New Mutants and X Force, and like McFarlane was doing um, Spawn, and there was all this exciting stuff happening. That's when I really. Um, I really kind of keyed into the idea that, oh, I could maybe do this. Like, this seems mm-hmm. like something I could I could actually do. And then I started seriously researching it and producing my own artwork and showing it to people. Very cool. Yeah, I was, uh, I'm, I'm going to jump around a little bit with these questions that I have. I don't got a, a script for them, but you brought up something that I had to ask you later, which was um, Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld and, and um, Todd McFarlane, because on your website, you've got those really cool t-shirts of all the names of the image founders. So clearly, uh, it made an impact on you, especially as a creator 
who would soon break into the industry in 1994, right around the somewhat beginning of Image, right? It would have been two years old at the time. What I was at the Image Comics, um, uh, the Image Comics tent at Chicago Comic Con, which I think was their first major um, convention appearance in 1992. So cool. And I still have the swag from that. And I met a bunch of those guys at the time. I was just like a kid with, I actually took my first sample pages to that show and I showed them to some, I showed them to Jim Valentino and Eric Larson at the time. Um, they were terrible. I mean, not the guys, <laughs> my work was terrible. Um, the guys were really generous and with their time and very nice, but uh, yeah, I'm just a nerd for, um, for image and like, and, and that whole, that whole time in comics is really just kind of like a magical um, time capsule for me because I was trying to get into the the industry and I was, it was my first shows. And, and I think that attitude around um, the creation of Image Comics and this sort of maverick mm-hmm. movement toward creator own stuff really set the tone for how I view everything. Um, so I think it, I think it's like my, my career now and the way I'm, you know, I'm, I'm handling my website and doing my own stuff and, and the way I, I distribute my stuff really owes a lot to um, those guys. Yeah, I was I, I figured that as much, especially as I peruse the rest of your, your site and you made it something that is very um, it's, it's so friendly to a newcomer and it's um, what's in it for a person who would subscribe to your website. It, there's so much generosity on your end for what the, the subscriber gets and that it's a it's one of those things that I guess the image founders were in a way fighting for the rights of the artists, the creators, and also for the readers to kind of decide what it is that that they want or how much they want. So I, I thought it was kind of fitting that you ha- I was looking at the shirt and I'm like, what does that have to do with anything? Who? And it's just the first names. I said, oh, that's so cool. Because if you know, you know, yeah, right? You no, know, you know, it's funny walking down the street because I I, ba- I made that shirt just because I wanted it. Right. And then, and then I thought like, because I, you know, you see those styles of shirts all the time. And I just thought like my, you know, kind of want to represent my dream team. Mm-hmm. I just want that shirt. And then I just put it up there for people to get if they want it. But it's funny to walk down the street with it because nobody has any idea. Like really until you see the, until you see the name Wills, it doesn't really <laughs> click because that like that just sort of ties it all. Yeah, because there's what two gyms there. There's a Todd. Gyms, there's a Rod. Rob. Todd, Rob. Jim. Mark. Eric. Jim. Wills. Wills. Wills is the one that does it. Yeah, you're right. That's so funny. Did you have also? They're in no particular order. Right. I, I didn't want to. <laughs> I would never try to rank those guys. I was just about to ask you. Did you have someone that was kind of your favorite at the time, or was it all just the? Because they all had something similar about them, but different enough that you can tell them apart. That you like I like that McFarland does this and I like that Lee does that but there was something about that those that dream team you called it that they just fit to be the ones to make image yeah they're well Jim Lee was my guy like like I would like I would follow his art to the ends of the earth like I just had everything he was doing at the time <clears throat> and um I really loved Rob's work uh, especially on X-Force like I actually want to get those um you can get like those like big, I think they're IDW um, uh, artist editions of uh, like inked covers, Marvel covers and things like that. There's a lot of cool black and white inked stuff. I bought the Jim Lee X-Men one. Um, but yeah, I just, uh, I, yeah, I appreciated different things about all of them. Really, mm-hmm. like I loved all their work uh, for different reasons. Um, and I could go through those, but it would be getting pretty nerdy. 
you know, no, we could do that. that yeah, of course. This is this is a comic book <laughs> podcast. We're here to be nerdy. Absolutely. Um, I think it's fitting then that we kind of talk about Lethal Comics, which is kind of another dream team in a way of three guys getting together and um, and and starting their own imprint, if you will. But I I, I looked up something that one of your peers had said about you. So I just want to kind of put you on the spot. It's not a hot take. Don't worry. But I just want to put you on the spot. And this is what they said. They said, Carl is probably the most incredible artist I've seen in the comic industry. And I really feel the singular talent for comic making is second to none. He makes the work seem effortless. And then he said that he'd hate it if I called him a genius, but I think he really is. That was from your buddy there, Andy Belange, your partner. Oh my gosh. Yeah, he put he put oh. something really lovely on his Kickstarter about you. And it was, uh, it, he said a lot more than that. But how does it feel to have your peers uh, feel these things about you or say these things about you? Um, it's weird. I mean, like, I think everyone feels like has, you know, suffers from imposter syndrome. Yeah. Because, you know, like you have your, you have your good days and your off days. And like, and also I sit beside these guys and I watch them do amazing work. Like Andy, Andy's doing the best work of his career right now on his, his, um, mother trucker series. And then like Carrie Nord is next to him painting full, like just beautiful, most beautiful artwork you've ever seen. Um, so yeah, it's humbling. It's, um, it's just, um, I'm really lucky to be sitting with those guys every day. What made the, um, the team form Lethal Comics and what, if you can describe to us what Lethal Comics is and will be? Um, what it will be, that's a good question. We formed it because, um, we all had, I think, you know, it's part of it is just age. I think like we're all in our forties. Um, we all have work we really we're desperate to do that is um, our own and we wanted to to work on like basically make time to work on those stories and also all of our income is is um, happens to be through you know work for hire Mm -hmm. um, jobs like industry jobs which is great but it doesn't leave a lot of time to do your own thing so we just kind of made a pact with each other to create our own stuff and then see if we could make a go of it, putting it out on, um, you know, through Kickstarter. Like basically give, get it directly into the hands of readers. Because a, like a lot of this stuff also might not be things that um, your typical publishers want to publish. Mm, and right. the beauty of, um, of the crowdfunding model as it is right now is that you don't have to go to anybody. You can just make the thing you want and put it out there and it'll find an audience. I mean, Kickstarter has been amazing for that. Just letting, you know, like there, there are so many successful comics on Kickstarter uh, by creators I've never heard of who are just doing, you know, they're, they're basically making their dreams come true and, and funding their, pro- like beyond funding their projects. They're making a living off of titles that, that um, most people, you know, most regular comic shop goers have never heard of. So, um, so we just, like Lethal Comics is really just... Um, it's more like a just like a brotherhood. It's just like mm-hmm. a like a commitment to to make our own stuff and promote each other's stuff and um, and stand behind um, creator owned work. That's the way I see it. Yeah, that's great. We're kind of just like cheering each other on all the time. That's what it amounts to. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's. I think you, we need so much more of that as much as we can get of it because I, as much as the there's you know you go into a comic shelf and your attention and your dollar, there's a competition for it every week, every Wednesday, there's something there. I do find that within the the industry, 
uh, a lot of artists do support each other. They're very, very generous to each other, and it's always good to see more of that happen. Especially, you know, you got your and you're saying that Lethal Comics is more of a brotherhood for us to promote each other. That's very refreshing. Um, and Kickstarter too, it it really gives you a gauge of who's getting your books, right? Because a lot of times you you work for the big two or for you know some corporation doing a character. And you know that people, the stores bought it, has bought a certain amount of copies. But in this case, you see every dollar that, in your, in, you know, in the case of your current Kickstarter, it's a smash hit. So you kind of know, like, people like this and they're ready for it. So it, it's such a good gauge for the creator and the audience to have. That's good. It's amazing to have that <clears throat> that kind of market research. Right. Um, it's, it's really amazing to, well, I mean, just to, like, I've been kind of going through my entire list of backers and trying to, message everybody individually to say thank you and as you do that like you're just putting faces to names like i mean people have like avatars and or mm-hmm. whatever like some of them are like just photos of themselves or even if they're not they're just little drawings or pictures of their cat or whatever but like it's personal mm-hmm. you know like you go through all these people and you're like there's like a thousand people more than a thousand people back in this and like i actually have a direct connection to every one of them which is like unprecedented. Like, I don't know how, like, it's an amazing feeling to, to know that like these people are just, um, are, are just, uh, um, like interested enough in your work to, to support it directly like that. Yeah. Cause you go to a store and you know, a book might be the hot book of the month and it could be pick of the week and everybody wants to buy it because of, uh, you know, maybe a first appearance they heard of or a variant cover. But in this case, people are on Kickstarter are backing it because they like what you do and they're willing to give anything you do a chance. So it's, I mean, it must help you get over that imposter syndrome whenever it is that you feel it, knowing that people are supporting what you do. Yeah, for sure. Also, I mean, in, in the, you know, in the direct market, there is like, there's an element of um, competition. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, like the, the publishers are competing um, and because it's work for hire, there, there are a bunch of people vying for the best jobs Right. in the industry right like which is healthy and fine like i mean that's that's just the way that works but um but i think with something like kickstarter like there's there's no reason to be competitive with anybody like it like there's it's not a zero-sum game like there's like a thing will find its audience and that audience like you're not competing with um you know i'm not competing with like scott snyder's kickstarter or right. whomever like whomever's is launching their own thing. Like, it's just like, everything is its own thing. And, and as Sam is fond of saying, like, um, about Kickstarter, like a rising tide mm-hmm. lifts all ships in this case. Like it's only helping everybody. Yeah, exactly. It's helping comics on, on a grander scale. Yeah, no, it's true because we've, I mean, myself, I'm so guilty of it, of, of one, I collect a lot of older books that are now being put into hard covers and all these nice collected formats and, you know, you go, I, I have the tendency, the, the tradition in a way of going to the shop when you could every Wednesday. But with, with Kickstarter, it really shows us as, as a community that people want to get behind the passion of an artist or a creator. Because you look at some of the, the best work that people have done, whether it's like Walt Simonson Thor, I always refer to that. That's felt like a passion project and it became mm-hmm. his best work. And, you know, you think of some of the things that now you're working on, you can see the passion in, in, in uh, Charles Christopher, or even like Sean Daly with the Bridge Builders Creed. You, you see that there's something that you want to say and nobody's holding you back from doing it, even if it might seem weird. 
which mm-hmm. is what the people I think want. Yeah. Also, it's all like, um, it's fun for me to look back at all that stuff I've done, but because it's like, it's 14 years old at this point and mm. it's all still free online. So new people are finding it all the time. And, and when I go back and look at it now, I kind of discover things about myself that I'm, I didn't realize while I was making them, you know, like it's a, it's a neat, um, it's kind of a neat diary for me in a way. Like it's, it's very personal in that sense. Yeah. That was actually something that I wanted to, to ask you, um, over the course of working on Charles Christopher, what was something that you learned about yourself while you were making it? Oh, um, boy, that's a good question. Um, I, what did I learn about myself? Well, I learned that, um, I learned that I can be disciplined enough to actually produce a thing, you know, Mm. like on, you know, because like, I, I think it's like, I think it's probably the the thing I've been most disciplined about in my entire career. You know, like I was doing West Strip every week for seven years um, before I had kids and had to, had to kind of take it easy. And um, that was, that was kind of eye opening. That's just the idea that I could sustain something for that long. Um, I didn't think I had that in me. Um, it taught me. Um, it it kind of kind of teaches me about things that I that are important to me. Like um, I'm I'm making you know it's a humor strip for the most part, but also stuff creeps in. Themes creep in there that you know I might I might just think are are funny when I come up with them in the morning, but but end up being sort of profoundly um, about things that I'm concerned about, whether it's the environment or like mm-hmm. animal rights or, or, um, anything like, you know, it could, could be about to like the, like the, uh, like, um, like economic situations or, or advertising. Like it just could be anything. I have something to, I feel like I have something to say about, like, I don't really, I don't really, a lot of the things that, that end up in the abominable strips are not things that I, that come up in regular conversations that I have, mm-hmm. you know, like, like they just only show up there. And I, I'm like, I don't think I get preachy about it, but like, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's just stuff that I, I guess I feel strongly about. And often I don't know those things until I actually draw them and put them online. Sometimes, sometimes it's years later before I, I look at it all and, and understand what I was talking about. So when you started Charles Christopher, and it was something that you just wanted to do. It wasn't something you were getting paid for. There wasn't any intention. It was just a free web comic. Um, what was the conception of it? Where did it come from? Did it did it have anything to do with you growing up in by close to animals and seeing them regularly? That you understood maybe this is the best way to communicate some ideas and feelings that I have. Well, it was originally when I was trying to think of. Um a web comics too, because a bunch of us at the time in the Toronto studio were, we were all launching web comics at the same time. And we each picked a different day of the week to update. And so we were all working on different ideas and I had a different, like another, actually a couple other ideas that I wanted to do. And I was in the process of writing them and fleshing them out. And then one day I just had this, um, I was listening to a radio show. What was it about? I think I was listening to CBC and there was some kind of, show about um i think just people who had escaped into the or who had like left home and just were living in the woods <laughs> mm. and uh and it's just sparked something and then like the name just sort of occurred to me and i just started drawing it that day i did the first drawing of it which ended up being the banner of the comic um the, the first one i used and 
And that was it. And I had no real plan for it. I just started drawing. I didn't even have a plan to draw animals. It just turned out that, um, like, I, I realized I, I really just enjoyed drawing animals. Like, I was drawing, I think I was, professionally, I was working on the Teen Titans Year One miniseries at the time. Okay. And there was a, just, I mean, there was, at the end of each issue, originally, um, there was a segment at the end of each issue. It was a two-page little sort of epilogue that featured Beast Boy um, looking for the Teen Titans, but he was in the form of an animal each time. And so I think we did, it was in, I think it got into either the first or first two issues um, before um, DC cut it. Like they told us we couldn't do that because they said animals in the DC universe do not talk. (laughs) So, so there were, there's actually a bunch of unpublished uh, two page um, little backups of, uh, of Beast Boy talking to animals that never made it into that Teen Titans series. But that kind of, you know, it kind of pissed me off and yeah, um, yeah. because it was, a, it was a fun book and it, it, it absolutely fit in that book. And the idea like of being constrained in that way for no really good reason um, kind of upset me. And, and, and I think um, I guess I, I guess I wanted to draw animals in a way that is, that like, you know, that, that um, was um, like unhindered by, editorial control like i don't know like there was no real plan but that's just what came out as a result of that episode yeah and where did the name come from because it this is me trying to think maybe too deeply but because you say it's kind of a diary was there any connection in having the alliteration of the name similar to carl kershaw and charles christopher at all (laughs) because yeah i know not at all Um, (laughs) okay not at all but uh, but people have pointed that out and i realized it afterwards like i I thought oh geez that's gonna (laughs) that's probably not coincidental like i didn't plan it but that's just uh i think you're right i think it i think it is probably like semi-autobiographical in the vaguest sense like all of those Mm -hmm. characters are are weird facets of uh of my personality. Um, but like, yeah, I, I think I can, can relate to that dopey character for sure. And the more people, would you say that the more that people know you, they can maybe see where some of these strips come from, like conversations between, you know, different animal family members and, and relationships between two different species. Is there, if people know you well, could they see like, I know where he got that from, or maybe your brothers they, or sisters? I mean, I think they, I think people who know me definitely know where certain, mm-hmm. um, certain personalities come from or certain situations. Um, but you know, so much of it is farcical that like I, sometimes I have to, <laughs> you know, I have to like, um, explain to my wife that like, no, I don't actually feel this way about <laughs> our, our marriage. This is just, <laughs> just funny commentary about this bird's marriage. I, I don't feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But but I was thinking that because I heard you on other podcasts describe that there's moments in, in the strip where you realize it was you growing up listening to your parents and mm-hmm. drawing back some of the things that they had said to you in your way of kind of saying, I heard you all those times you thought I, I wasn't hearing you. So I, I was I was reading it under that lens as well, thinking to myself, well, now I can, now that he's shared that information, you can kind of see the value beyond just the. The, the humor at first in it, there's a, a nice layer, a couple of layers of things that you can pull from it with. There's a lot of charm to it. Um, when you started it, was it just, it was just a weekly one strip a week? 
was what yeah, happened? Yeah, well, every Wednesday I did a, I did a new strip. Um, yeah, and it was uh, unplanned. It was just whatever thing I felt like drawing on that day. And then I would basically just put aside all of my work on Wednesday, wake up in the morning, try to think of an idea, draw it, get it up on the web, and then forget about it for another week. That's how it operated. And and was there so there wasn't any sort of story arc in your mind for Charles Christopher no. to go through? Was I didn't want to do living? a story. Like I I was um, I never planned to make any kind of story out of it. It just was supposed to be a week to week kind of situational thing, like about this this dopey character kind of getting into trouble or, hmm. you know, like getting hungry and following his gut and getting into trouble with different animals. And, and, um, it was, you know, it was kind of inspired by, I mean, you're younger than I am, but I don't know if you remember like the old Walter Lance, Woody Woodpecker cartoons. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like kind of slapsticky in that way. Like I just, I, there's something about those old cartoons that I really liked. And, and that was kind of the vibe I was going for. And then, um, maybe just probably because of like, because of the things that I, because of my tastes and the things that I like, like I watch a lot of Ghibli films, um, and tonally, like I like the, uh, like a lot of Miyazaki's, like my neighbor Totoro and mm. Nausicaa and all these things. Um, like things, things started to get, things started to get into some weird, fantastical epic territory. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of felt out of my hands at that point. Like I, I was just, um kind of just following these whims and then it suddenly became um a, a longer form narrative which i now have to see through <laughs> yeah and and i <laughs> think that's that's the treat of reading this book it's important to kind of know the the conception of it because when you realize that the characters it's almost like they they take on a life of their own even more than when you're reading a you know the big two whatever's happening in x-men you, there's the imagination and the and the life of those characters kind of we follow them, but in this case, we're literally you're literally following the characters that you've created, but their story is being told to you as much as you're putting it out on the page, which I think brings the book to a different level when you read it that way. I, I think I mean I can only speak to my own experiences with writing, but I think that's what happened like I think anytime a writer is connected to their characters in their world that's what happens and that's the thing that that um that becomes transcendent that makes it that turns it into art you know like when you're no longer really in control you're just guiding this thing that is inherently true like mm-hmm. it's a fictional thing but it, there's so much truth just human truth in it that it um that it becomes like it just ascends to a different level and and becomes resonant with people because there's so much there's so much of everyone in it. You mm-hmm. know? Does yeah. that make any sense? Like it sounds metaphysical, but I think there is there's a component of writing that is metaphysical in that way. Well, I I completely agree with you. I I'm always so interested in the metaphysics aspect of a writer or someone who's doing anything of in a creative space where they. Like you have the ability to draw, you have the ability to write, but then something hits you and you can't help but put it down. And it's almost like it wasn't even you that made it. You just kind of opened yourself. You made you opened the window for the idea to come in because you were ready mm-hmm. to put it down. And I'm always interested in hearing writers say, well, I, I didn't write that. The character was always like that. I think the famous one was uh, 
J.M. DeMatteis when he wrote Spider-Man um, number 400. And they would always ask him, you know, did, how did you come up with the, the idea that Aunt May always knew he was Peter Parker? He goes, I didn't come up with it. She just knew. It was there on the page. So I love hearing when writers share their experience in that regard. Um, what was something that you allowed to grow in, in Charles Christopher? I mean, I know you're making it come along as every week, but was there something that, oh, I see where this character is going now, and, and it excited you to see the journey that Charles Christopher was on? Yeah, well, there were there were different, there were a couple of different, um, I don't want to call them storylines, there were just a couple of different um, sort of themes or, or, or threads in the, in the story that I was, um, I, I sort of had a, I, I developed a plan for because I would just, my process was I would just usually walk to the studio or like, actually a lot of it came to me on um, a motorcycle trip I was taking with my brother out to Cape Breton. And um, I would uh, be listening to music or hum, singing something or just thinking. It's just a very meditative experience being on the back of a bike for a long time. And, uh, and uh, I just let my kind of uh, my, my, imagination role with uh, different scenarios and there were a couple of things that I wanted I just sort of wanted to see happen like like certain scenes I wanted to see um that that then I, I just became interested and in and excited about um about getting to like one of the things was um was Charles Christopher um like digging like finding this this uh like a bunch of these um these arctic fox siblings mm. at the end of the first chapter um like i didn't know how i was going to get to that or even if it made any sense but it was a it was a visual an image that was in my head in a moment that i really really liked and felt was um important and so uh, that was something that i just allowed to grow um and there's other stuff there's like a, there's there's another whole thread that's sort of like a weird like fable type backstory that's in a completely different art style that is something I'm interested in, but I don't quite know what it is. Like it's, it looks nothing like anything else in this strip. And I've done like two or three of them in this style. And, uh, and um, I think they're, they're probably linked to how the entire thing will end, like the whole Charles Christopher backstory. But I don't quite exactly know what that is. Like, I think I know, but it, I might be wrong by the time I get to uh, like the last, like the ending of that thread. That's creative freedom, right? Not knowing and letting it mm -hmm. be. That that's got to be so exciting in a way to know. Knowing is knowing in advance is kind of stressful, right? Because then you're just kind of impatient about it. You're like, well, now I just want to get to this and tell the story. But like, if you don't know, then it's it's also scary. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty, but it's like a but there's a lot of faith involved. Like I just yes. kind of have to have faith that this process will work itself out. Like I mean, it's worked so far. <laughs> and you know like it hasn't steered me too terribly wrong so like I'm just gonna trust that um this story kind of knows better than I do right and uh and just go from the gut and see what happens yeah I mean I never I'm always scared to think of writing a story simply because I feel like I would just copy something I already knew because I feel like you should know what the ending is going to be right but um one of Mark Wade, for instance, always says that he writes himself into a corner, not knowing how to get out of it. But it's the originality comes from trying to figure that that maze out. And, you know, your your sentiments now kind of mirror that, which 
makes the work original in a way. Because you didn't even know what it was going to be. It's not like you said he's got to get to this point and as long as I make that happen. That can make, I think, more plot holes occur in a way. Mm-hmm. Because but plot holes in a, in a good way, maybe? Maybe, <laughs> like a- maybe but you know, stuff that you, you kind of conveniently changed in order to, to get that end goal. Whereas in your case, you don't know what the end is. You're just letting Charles Christopher live his life and, and drawing it for us. Mm-hmm. Which is very there. Cool. Are, I mean, yeah, there are there are certain things that like uh, I, I guess they're not plot holes, but certain things that I did um, in the process of telling that story that uh, I didn't know were going to be. Um, the, the, I didn't know they would come back or that they'd be significant. Mm-hmm. You know, like just different things. Like, like there's a there's a point in the first chapter also where um, like Charles meets this sort of like lion demigod mm. and he drops his like he has a pacifier he's like a baby pacifier in his mouth all the time right. he drops that thing in the snow right which which to me seemed like a significant moment or visual but i didn't know why hmm. like he drops this thing and leaves it there i'm not sure why but it seems like an important thing so i'm just going to leave it alone and see what what comes of it and then um down the road it it becomes a like it becomes an object that you know another character finds and becomes significant. Like stuff like that. Um, I don't think you always have to know why you're doing stuff as long as it feels correct at the time. Right. I was going to ask that about the pacifier with uh, with Charles Christopher. Was it a sign of his innocence, or was it just something that you saw the character having? I think it's for sure a sign of him losing some innocence. Um, but also I think it works as a plot device for later on. Right. Okay. I have, I, I just finished book one. I'm going to move on to book two and, and I'm excited that there's going to be a book three very soon. So I don't want no more spoilers for Charles Christopher. <laughs> I want to, I want to keep following. <laughs> no real spoilers yet. I mean, like there's, you can read like, everything that's in book three is currently on the web right now. So you can go and read through. Okay. All of that, even even stuff that will be in the eventual book four is currently on the web right now. I'm still kind of working my way through to a conclusion, but um, it's all up there for you to read. Okay, yeah, I I, uh, I purchased the first two uh, PDFs uh, over the weekend, and I, I finished up book one. And at first, you know, naturally, much like you in the creating process, I wasn't sure where this was going. I didn't know what. The, mm-hmm. And then when you do get to that point of the lion demigod. Um, I got very excited. I needed to finish it. I had to just sit through it to see what, because I knew it would somehow, you didn't get to that point and then make a callback even to the, um, the trap, the, the lion's mouth looking like a trap and, and mm-hmm. the visceral reaction that Charles Christopher has, you know, like, okay, now we're, we're on a journey. We don't know what it is still, but uh, I needed to, you know, follow through on that. It, it was great. And that moment that you spoke about with the, with him being around all of the Arctic foxes, was just such a calming, peaceful moment, like a great way to kind of cap off the book with what he had gone through. So very well, well done. Thank you. Um, let's talk about Isola for a little bit. It's it's something that you are you and Brendan are going to be completing and going back to soon. Yeah, it's um, I've I've drawn pages from the third chapter already. Um, we were. We just we just released the second volume, which is like collecting issues six through ten, I think. Yeah. Um, last, May, well, I don't even know when it came out. I'm going to say May or June because everything was shut down at the time. Um, but then uh, it all kind of went on hiatus because Brendan got COVID. Oh. Um, I was 
you know, I started working on some other stuff and then we didn't, uh, like he had terrible symptoms for months. So we didn't start, um, he's fine now, (laughs) but, uh, we didn't start, um, like properly getting into the writing portion of it until like late last year. So, um, I've drawn some stuff. It's going to continue. Uh, we still have to, I don't know when it's going to come out exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, but we're working on it. So yeah, I'd like to, uh, I really want to see that through as well. Yeah, that I, your artwork in that is absolutely stunning. Um, it's hard not to keep turning those pages, even if there were no words on it, because you build uh, such a, a magnificent world. The idea for Isola was something that, is that the right way to say it? Am I pronouncing it right? Mm-hmm, yes, perfect. Oh, okay. The idea for it was something that you had had before in your head, right? Kind of formulating it. It was an idea that uh, Brendan and I, Brendan Fletcher and I, uh, we grew up together. I mean, oh, we've okay. known each other since we were like nine year, 10 years old or something. Um, and so we've always been like, we've always been making comics and coming up with stories. And we had, we worked on a long, uh, a long epic story for a few years that never got published. We did a bunch of sample, like lots of sample pages. We've written like most of a screenplay for it. There's a ton of designs. I actually have it all up on my website for subscribers there's like an entire like pitch book and and like a whole script and pages. It was called Miki. And um, it never, it almost got published by a couple of, almost by image, almost by, um, I think Oni almost published it, but it never got off the ground. And then we kind of got off to doing other things. I did a lot more um, Marvel and DC work after that. But, um, and then Brendan and I worked on uh, Wednesday comics and then Gotham Academy uh, and then when it came time to do, like, we always wanted to do Im- an image book. Because mm-hmm. as I said, I'm a big image comics nerd. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love everything they stand for. So, like, it, it, like to do an image book was always on my, on my radar. Um, and I had asked Brendan one day, like, what, like, what can we do that would, um, that would sort of marry, um, like, the mainstream like the superhero comics audience I have with the Charles Christopher audience, because Mm. they're totally almost completely separate readerships. Um, And like often, like most of the people who are reading my, you know, my superhero work have no idea I'm doing like an animal web comic and vice versa. So, so I, I said to Brendan, it'd be nice to do something that merged that in some way. And he kind of, he pitched me this idea. He, He said, think about it. He came back and pitched me this idea about, um, a queen who'd been turned into a tiger and her captain of the guard who has to um, uh, kind of um, guide her across the world to, um, to get her turned back into a human again. And I thought that was amazing. And so we just started fleshing it out and writing it. And, uh, and, uh, and we did it. We did, we've done 10 issues so far. So that's the origin of it. And we're uh, still going, but I think um, that has a firm ending. I mean, we, when he, we talked about it initially, like we had a very concrete ending in mind for that. So it's just a matter in that case of getting to it. And we've just been like, for me, that that's just like a, that's just like a road trip comic. Right. It's just these two women getting from point A to point B and all the cool stuff that happens in this really fun world that we're developing. Yeah. It, it, um, it was one of, again, one of those books where it was the simple plot, that quick elevator pitch of, queen turned into an animal with her guard trying to turn back and you know that along the way that's where all the excitement is going to happen on the road trip 
Um, and it's so interesting. I, I should have caught that, I guess, but I'm happy I didn't, that it combines what you're doing in your webcomic with your your big two stuff or your, um, yeah, it, it, that's a great, great way to put it. So it had a firm ending, did, but along the way, it feels like these characters, like you guys don't really know necessarily where these characters are headed or was the whole story kind of mapped out? Like we're going from here and journeying these valleys and peaks and we got to get to there. No, it's, it was mapped out in that we know what the, uh, what the final ending is, Okay, but, um, but we would kind of just for each chapter, each arc, just kind of, um, establish between ourselves what the thrust of that arc, like whether, like, where we want those women to be at the end of that chapter and, um, and just vaguely the kind of stuff that's going to happen to them along the way. Like, um, like the second, the second book is very much, um, um, it's, it's a bit of a diversion. Like it's like we had, we had some story stuff we wanted to tell about, um, this witch character and we wanted to weave that in. It's, it's, it's really just, yeah. Like, um, kind of creating uh, conflict on the road along there, like, uh, toward, like I say, head toward their destination. Because like, if they're traveling across the world, like you, you, that, that journey has got to be, <laughs> it's got to be worth something. It's got to be worth talking about. Right. So we just keep, um, I just, I think the way I come at it is I like to just think about what, like, what can we see? What haven't we seen in this world yet? Like what kind of stuff do I want to, see and what kind of stuff do I want to show people and let's just throw them into that scenario and see where we end up and where we end up like um, visually and emotionally right um how long will will the series be like a neat 15 issues is there going to be uh two more volumes how do you, you guys have an idea of the the length of the series yeah we're thinking like probably either 20 or 25 wait wait no it's like 20 or 30 issues I think either four or five trades probably okay. four Okay. at this point nice even yeah. number are you yeah. how excited are you to get to that that payoff at the end of the journey i'm really excited but like at the same time i don't want to be too excited about it because it, it really like it's hard to you know what i don't want to shortchange all the other stuff like as because as you said i think like that journey is as important or more important than the yeah the destination so um yeah, I don't want to rush anything. No, no. <laughs> like that book is basically all about um, indulgences. Like it's just, <laughs> it's just us indulging our, our tastes, like our taste for decompressed storytelling and, and, um, and like drawing a lot of flora and fauna. Like, it's just like, the last thing I want to do is, is rush through it to get to, uh, uh, you know, get to the end. Yeah. So just want to kind of savor it, you know? Yeah. And, and it's, it, it is a very savory book because the, the artwork is so lush with all of the different locations that you end up and, and the different types of people you encounter. And there isn't any dialogue between the two partners on their trip, but there's so much said based on yeah, the artwork. Cause a tiger can't speak. So like it, it you end up with these, um, these moments that are challenging to portray because only like you've got these two frustrated characters who can't properly communicate with each other. So like a lot of the book is just about them trying to, come to terms with each other yeah and and what i like about it too is that there isn't so much um information given to you that you need to know this and you need to know that and that's why this is how you're kind of figuring it out as you travel with them it's more about the journey as opposed to all the information which i think Mm -hmm. is 
makes it exciting to get to the next issue because in a way you know what's happening only if you read it not because you've been told all these things yeah well one of the things um i really i like fantasy stories but i hate for the most part reading fantasy fiction prose fiction because it Mm. um because almost like 90 percent of the time you're they front load a lot of world building and like Uh, weird names of things and it just like I, it just does not immerse me in any way. Like I might like the 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 thing overall, but like I find it really hard to get into. And when we were writing Isola, um, originally it started with like with the origins, sort of like like how did this woman turn into a tiger? And then we were like, and how did they escape the city? And then we thought like, well, I want to see any of this? Like I just want to, I just want to get to these women on the road, and that's it. And so we just started it where, you know, with them already traveling and we did, you know, we explained some, some stuff in flashbacks and, and whatnot um, to keep people, to keep everybody. Cause you know, it's kind of, you know, you you have to put a lot of faith in us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like as a reader, you have to just kind of trust that we're not going to leave you hanging too badly. And, uh, and then, yeah, we, 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 um, we kind of gradually drop information so you know what's happening. And the, the third, actually the third chapter of it gets into like, a lot of explanation, like a lot of backstory. Like it basically starts with a, like a backstory dump, but in, I think what I think is a really interesting way. Like I'm really excited about the way this, like the, the like issue, I guess it would be issue 11 of it uh, is something I've wanted to do for a long, long, long time. Yeah. That that's exciting. And, and you know, it's, it's not the same type of a story of course, but when you watch something like the original star Wars series, you're thrust into this adventure that's taking place. There, you, you're, and as the story goes on, you start realizing who's connected to who and how this affected that. But you don't know the history of Obi-Wan Kenobi. You just know, hey, this is an important guy. And I feel mm-hmm. like that's a similar feeling that I had reading Isola was as the story progresses, it's not that you've been info dumped, like you said, of this particular location and what it all means. You figure it out when you get there, which... Uh, yeah. You know, you go to you watch the, the the prequels of Star Wars, and you get all that information dump, and it doesn't hold up the same. It doesn't actually um, add any value to it. To no, me. like it's 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 better to not know, um, to, because then it forces you to create interesting stories in your head about where you know where those characters might have come from or what they might have been like. I don't need to know what the hell the details of the Kessel Run are. Yeah, it's it's just why? Like why? Do, why do I need to know that? And it didn't can, live up to my imagination. It being something great. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, when I saw it in the movie, and I'm like, I gotta see this movie just so I know what the Kessel Run is. When it happened, I was like, okay, I liked it better not knowing. You're absolutely yeah. right. It just sounded cool, <laughs> the Kessel Run. Um, going back a little bit in time, you said that you had worked in a studio in Toronto, and I and I. Uh, read up that it was Raid Studios. Were you? Did you happen to be one of the founders of Raid Studios here? I was not one of the founders. No, um, I think I don't actually. Who founded it? it was like Cameron and Cameron Stewart, um, Ramon Perez. I don't know. If, I think he was in there at the beginning, or at least very early. I know Chip um, Zdarsky's Chip name. Chip Zdarsky yeah. was in there. Uh, ben Shannon, uh, Kagan McLeod. Um, and I don't remember who else, maybe Eric Coe. I can't remember. Anyway, when I got in there, it was a slightly different crew. Andy Belanger was already there. Um, Scott Hepburn was there. Kalman Andrzejewski came in afterward, like shortly after I did, I think. 
was it after or before? I can't remember anymore. Um, I think it was after. But anyway, yeah, I think I, I got, because I was already living in Montreal and I had moved back to Toronto and uh, that was 2006, 2006, 2007. And then I back to Montreal again. But they were, it was a great year. It was a great time. Um, very, very um, creative, inspiring time because uh, we were all, um, we were all just very like just helping each other. You know, mm-hmm. it was like a, it was like a really good energy of everybody um, kind of inspiring one another and then like helping out with, uh, with page design or whatever problem, like writing issues. It was just a, a really good, really good vibe there. Yeah. What's the value? Because I talked to a lot of guys who are, who are still part of uh, raid studios and it still has that sense of, camaraderie but for you what were some of the things that you got out of having that collective around you you were already a professional in the business right but what was something that you were able to take away from there having having been in there with them well aside from just making really good friends of course um, just learning constantly like just seeing like you know because you're making comics is a pretty solitary endeavor so um you know you kind of figure things out and you do you do what you're able to do (laughs) for you know page after page but when you're in a space watching other guys do what they do you you it becomes very clear very quickly that that um there are different ways to go about everything and people might be um might be doing things in a way that you hadn't even thought of which Mm. is absolutely the case so um yeah it's like i can't i can't recommend it enough i mean a studio environment is a really great place for a comic book artist yeah, especially because it's so solid. Like reading comic books is so solitary, and creating them is too. So, yeah, it's it's always refreshing to hear stories of all the positives that came out of people being together in a studio. And now you said that you share a studio with with uh, Andy and Carrie now. Yep, with Andy and Carrie, uh, Sweeney Boo is also in our studio. I don't know if you know her. She's done a ton of like work for uh, like on Captain Marvel. Um, she, I think she's doing some like backup stories in Batman now. She's amazing, but she had to leave um, when COVID hit. Hopefully, she will be back soon. Um, and yeah, we're like slowly expanding. You know, like we have a really cool space in Montreal that we're sharing with uh, a video game company, um, which is fun. That's another whole. Um, avenue of inspiration is like you right. know like we share this one large space half of it is um these guys that we know from ubisoft who left and formed their own game company so like you know we'll sit on like they, they can see they see what we're doing all the time um they help us with our kickstarters and stuff and and we will like sit in on story meetings for their game and just like pitch stuff or talk about things talk about design it's just like a beautiful kind of symbiotic <laughs> thing there because i also love games and game design and it's just nice to be able to be to be able to share that space yeah you worked on uh, some assassin's creed as well right some of the novel mm-hmm. graphic yeah was that a thrill were you a fan of the game or was it i was yeah i played a lot of the first uh two or three of those games and then because our studio at the time was right around the corner from ubisoft and we were doing some um you know the occasional print or piece of artwork for them or some like preliminary design stuff and they they wanted to make comics out of assassin's creed so they came to us and asked if we'd be interested and that was a real that was a real trip like we were in and out of there they were super cool about um collaboration i mean we would just go in there and pitch ideas and they basically just let us do whatever we want as long as it made sense right within their world so we created a whole new character like a russian assassin <laughs> and did a, like a russian revolution story mm-hmm. 
and it was awesome. It was really fun. That's great. So before we wrap up, I got two final questions for you. And one is the advice that you would give to up and coming artists in today's, uh, you know, climate of the industry, what would be advice to an up and coming writer or artist who want to break in? Uh, it's kind of always the same advice. It is, um, it is to stop trying to break in. Mm-hmm. There's nothing to break into. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just make the stuff you want to make and put it on the web for people to find. Um, and, and if you want to work for those publishers, like, like having that stuff online as part of your portfolio is only going to benefit you and they will probably find you. I mean, like good work. It's, it's, uh, it's like, as uh, it's, is it Brad Geiger who always says it on the, the comic lab podcast that I listen to? Um, like it's hard to, it's hard to hide good work on the internet, you know, mm. do your thing, put it online, put it up for free, put it up however you want, but just, you know, just, just do it, finish it, put it up there and then, um, and use that as your, as your springboard. Yeah, that, that's, that's great advice. It's true. There isn't really anything to break into. You just got to do what you like what you did with Charles Christopher, even though you were already in, you did what you were passionate about. Um, would you get like no gatekeepers to publishing your comic on the internet? That's right. Just do whatever you want, do whatever makes you happy, put it up there. Like it's going to be your best work because it's something you care about. Right. And, uh, and, uh, if it's good, people will find it. Right. That, yeah, that's so true. And the second question is, what advice would you give a young Carl Kershaw? Oh, my. <laughs> um, finish more stuff, mm. that's what I'd say. Um, my, I have like a short attention span. I get easily sidetracked and, and uh, attracted to new ideas, and shiny things. Um, my advice to younger me would be uh, sit down, um, work on small projects that are manageable, and mm-hmm. achievable mm-hmm. and finish them and then move on to the next thing. And I'm still learning that. Like I still, I'm still all over the place. Like it's hard for me to, to stick to one thing, but that's, that'd be my advice to me. That's good. That's also eat better and stretch, <laughs> stretch a lot. That is your actually neck, your really neck and back are going to be ruined after 30 <laughs> years. of <drawing> comics. <laughs> That is really great advice. As, as you, I say every seven years, your body changes just a little bit and you realize, Oh, that's what, you know, my aunts and uncles used to say why something was hurt. And you were just like, ah, they're just so lame. But yeah, no, it happens. Stretching, stretching's the key. Man, I hit 40 and like, I wake up <laughs> sore every morning, no matter what kind of exercise I do or how much stretching I do. I just wake up feeling like crap every yeah. morning and it takes me like 15, 20 minutes just to, just to feel normal. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It sucks. So like <laughs> take care of your body while you're, while you're younger. Well, whatever you've done, it, it, it uh, it must have worked because you always got a big smile on your face. You look like you're 30. You don't look 47. So keep doing whatever you're doing. And congratulations on all the success for everything that you're working on. I'm looking forward to Charles Christopher as well as the uh, next edition of Isola. It's uh, it's exciting. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, I, I appreciate uh, taking uh, you having me on here. Yeah, and, and all the best with uh, whatever's happening uh, with your next couple podcasts and more success for the uh, for the Kickstarter. That's great. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Carl, for coming on. I hope to have you on again and we could get into a little bit more of the details of some of your works as more questions will come to mind as I, I continue reading your stuff. Thank you so much. Stay tuned, everybody, for more episodes of The Cave of Solitude. Carl, thank you once again. <laughs>